neighbours. Um, today we are coming to the end of our, uh, our series, which we've been uh, experiencing for the last few months, uh, called Church, the Hope of the World. And um, I say this every week I preach, but I'll say it again, is that this, this, this series uh, we believe God's called us to walk through is, is, is to in some way do battle with what we believe to be a totally inappropriate belief in this nation for most people that the church is a kind of irrelevant, dusty, dying thing. And uh, in essence, what we passionately believe as a church is that the church is nothing less than the hope of the world. Amen? Amen. So this series, in the last few months, we've been looking at various topics that we believe God has put on our heart as an eldership team that in some way need to be part of a New Testament church. And today, we want to end with a bang. We're going to be looking at the issue of the judgment-believing church. And uh, obviously, I I don't need to say that this is a a serious one we're going to finish with. But we felt it was appropriate to do that for the reasons that will become clear as 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 we look at the subject this morning. I'm just going to pray and then we'll jump into God's Word. Holy Father, we thank you that we come before you now with total confidence. We thank you, mighty God, that you are the first and the last, and that, Lord, by grace, we are saved. And so today, Lord, we want to just welcome you afresh by your Spirit, that you would come now and just presence yourself upon us, your people. Lord, we say we love you. I pray, help me now as we look at this serious and yet ultimately wonderful issue. Lord God, we pray for your wonderful words to flow today. Lord, let your word do the heavy lifting. Let your word do the speaking. In Jesus' name, amen. A few years ago, I went to see the film Vanilla Sky. Anyone here seen that film, Vanilla Sky? Yeah, a big blockbuster film. I can't even really remember what it was about. But something very strange happened to me during that two hours that I was in Canterbury Odeon Cinema. I walked in, I think I've been a Christian about a year, and I walked in pretty full of God, pretty, you know, full of uh, confidence in our wonderful Jesus. And as the film rolled on, something quite bizarre happened to me, which I can't really explain. But what happened was, was that as the minutes ticked by, this thought got into my brain, was that according to my belief system as a Christian, Penelope Cruz, the actor, and Tom Cruise, the actor, both of whom at the moment I, I think are non-Christians as far as I'm aware, that if my, if my Bible is to be interpreted as I believe it to be, that one day they will die, and one day they will face God. And if they're still not Christians, then they will face judgment in a negative and terrifying way. Now this thought got into my head, and I couldn't shake it. And as I left that cinema, the only way I can put it was that it was like my faith, which in God maybe was 80% when I walked in, had almost gone right down. And and I I hadn't sort of lost my salvation or anything like that. I I don't believe you can as a Christian. But it was was like there's this cloud that come between me and God. And I thought, my goodness, how can I believe in a loving God and yet also believe in this truth that when you open the Scriptures and you read it through, Again and again and again, you see, unmissably, that our God is going to judge this world. And the months rolled past, and I wish I could say that I sprang back immediately into full spiritual power. 
But I, I, honestly, many months went past and it was the, the most dark period of my life as a Christian. I felt like, I, I knew I was a Christian, but I, I just felt, I felt that there was this almost cloud between me and God. Great, by the grace of God though, after several months, I found almost the, the clouds parting again. And I found myself, although still in awe of this awesome truth that we're looking at today, I found myself actually at a place where I knew that our God was good and loving and wanting, yearning to rescue this world. And my faith very much grew again. And I think actually... That kind of experience, when as Christians we open the Bible and we see words, particularly from Jesus, unashamedly about hell, about judgment, about the fact that this world at the moment is heading towards a terrible place. If, you've, if, you're, if you're even remotely a compassionate person, it's kind of hard to take, isn't it? Please say you understand. Yeah, it is, isn't it? You think, whoa, well, I, I don't like this part of the Bible. This is, this is awesome. This is scary. This is terrible. But what, as I looked at this, and as elders, we knew we had to in some way bring this to us as a church. We can't, this is not something you can just chop out of the Bible. It's there, all throughout. And in fact, you'll see in your, uh, in your, on your bits of paper just a few of the New Testament places where Christ talks about judgment. I felt that actually the way that we come through on this as a church to a place of relative peace about it is not that we look intently at actually what that judgment will be like, although we need to have a theology of that. That's not what I'm attempting to do here today. The scriptures are pretty clear. The key, I believe, and the key for me all those years ago, and I believe the key for us is this, and this is the the main idea of today. The way we come through on it is not so much looking at the issue of judgment in and of itself in terms of what it will look like, but at the judge who brings the judgment. Because the reality is, the way that we come through on this isn't so much by softening or attempting to soften the picture that we see in Scripture, as many theologians have have attempted to do. The way that we come through it actually lies in having a fuller revelation of the judge. That is the key that we need today. Because the reaction that a person has towards something ultimately appears either reasonable or totally unreasonable in large part according to the assessment of that person. So, for example, Andy Shev, can you stand up? Andy Shev, most of you will know, I work with this guy in the office. He's the kids worker in the church. Now, if I was to have a cup of coffee with Andy Shev and Andy and I were to be talking about something and and Andy was to say something that I disagreed with and I was to say, Andy, you're an incompoop. You're a complete wally. You're an absolute... A silly person, I totally disagree with you. I must have go on and on, ranting away. And Andy was then to grab me in a headlock. Put, no, you can't. I'm far stronger than you. And then to pull my arm behind my back, put handcuffs on me and bustle me into a car. You would think, okay, Tom was a bit out of order. But that is a totally inappropriate response. Amen? It's totally over the top. Thanks so much, Andy. Sit down. It is over the top. I'm sure you'll agree. But just say the same situation happened. But this time, I was having a cup of coffee with the Queen of England. And she says something that I disagree with. And rather than just biting my tongue, I say, do you know what? You're an idiot. You're a wally. How can you believe that? You're an absolute plonker. You're a complete nutter. 
And instantly, uh, the two bodyguards that are next to her grabbed me in a headlock, put my arm behind my back and busted me out of the car and put me in, in, in a secure van. Suddenly, we say that's actually a totally appropriate thing. I probably committed some high treason or something by insulting Her Majesty. And although I said the same thing, actually, because of who it was, we got something of the sense of, no, actually, that is, a, that is appropriate. Does that make sense? The same thing that we say, that I said to Andy, seems completely over the top when he tries to break my head, is, is actually a totally appropriate reaction when we understand and have a revelation of the person that we have committed the crime against. So today, very simply, I want to attempt for us to look at two key aspects of this judge, that is God. That I believe if we can in some way understand, to a greater degree, will help us to understand why it is when the Bible talks about judgment, when it talks about that day when we've given account for the things that we've done, actually, the things that we've done will need to be dealt with. So perfect is the one that we have offended. So my two points today is this. Are this, are these rather. (laughs) We have a holy judge, and number two, a loving judge. We have a holy judge and a loving judge. And I believe that these two core characteristics of our God fundamentally help us to unlock in some way an understanding of why judgment is totally appropriate. So, number one, a holy judge. What do I mean by the word holy? Well, Andrew Wilson. A budding theologian in his superb book, Incomparable, which I'm sure we've got in the uh, bookshop, is absolutely superb, no matter what age or background you're from, on on the character of God, says this. Perhaps the most central truth about God is that he is holy. Ask a Bible college student and they may say his omnipotence or his providence. Ask the average punter on the street and they would probably say love. But if you ask the angels who dwell in his presence, they would say one thing. Holy Holy, holy is Yahweh of hosts. The two occasions in Scripture when we hear what the angels are saying are separated by 800 years, but they are saying exactly the same thing in both. So overwhelmed are they by the staggering holiness of our God. And presumably, they have been saying it ever since and are saying it right here this morning. Bruce Milne, the New Testament scholar, points out that the word holy, in essence, just means separate. It means to be separate. It means other than. It means to be different from. The Hebrew word is quados or something, Q-A-D-O-S. But the, the meaning of it is that of separateness. And so what we see from the beginning of Scripture, right at the beginning in Genesis, again and again and again, God deems certain things as holy or separate. They're on your bit of paper again. We're not going to look at them in detail. Genesis 2, days can be holy. The Sabbath day is a separate day set aside for God. Places can be holy. Take off your shoes for you're on holy or separate ground. Gatherings can be holy, separate. They're not like any other gathering. They are holy, set aside for God. Indeed, nations can be holy. A holy nation belonging to God. And on and on and on. But this this is the main idea, guys, is that ultimately anything on earth that is holy or separate is always a pale reflection of ultimately our God in heaven who is totally holy with a capital H. Our God, the judge, is totally holy. Milne says this, he says, Our God, the judge, has a specific character reflecting an eternal commitment on his part in being who he is. God implacably separates himself from that which he is not. 
Thus, for example, God is good and has, hence separates himself eternally from all that is evil. He is true and thus separates himself eternally from all that is false. He is loving and hence separates himself eternally from all lovelessness. He is merciful and hence separates himself eternally from all unmercifulness. Our God is a profoundly separate God. That's what it means for him to be holy. So if you think about that, every attribute you could ever think of God is in some way holy. We can say God is faithful. We've been singing it this morning, God, you are faithful. He is faithful, and in some ways we can understand that at an earthly level. And yet our God has a holy faithfulness. He is faithful in a totally incomprehensible way different to us. We are sometimes, we're patchy faithful people, but our God is holy faithful, holy, separate in his faithfulness, totally, always, 100%, totally, never to be changed faithful. Our God is loving. We're kind of loving sometimes if we're feeling good, if we're feeling in a good mood, we're sort of loving, we kind of understand it. But really, it's a total pale reflection to our holy love of our God, who is passionately loving in a way we can never comprehend. Our God is holy, and his holiness underpins every single character. Every single characteristic of God is in some way holy, because it's separate to how we can understand in some way what it is. But if we think about it, just because God is holy and separate doesn't quite go far enough in terms of explaining why he must therefore judge us. Because, for example, God is powerful. He is ultimately powerful. Okay? He can do anything. Anything he wants, apart from lie. He is an ultimately powerful God. But why does that mean that he therefore must exert that power upon us? So, for example, my brother, my big brother, six years older than me, was always a bit of a scrapper. He was always a bit of a strong guy. And he he was given by God, as it were, because he was six years older than me, a lot greater strength and power. But just because he had the power, it wouldn't mean that he necessarily was right in using it against me as a little five-year-old, would it? Just because you've got it doesn't mean it's right to judge someone and to use it. Now, this is the heart of the message today. There is one particular aspect of God's holiness that unlocks this. That if we understand, that unlocks us in understanding why he is forced, as it were, by our actions to judge us. It is because he is a moral God. It is his morality A holy morality, that means he has to judge anything that is not moral. It affects us because we are made in his image. We are creatures made in the image of such a God, and so we are obligated. We are called to conform to God, summoned to side with him by separating ourselves from all that denies and opposes him. Our being his creatures means that he says to us, be holy Because I am holy. Human existence then is inescapably moral. It is a matter of right and wrong. And the endless choices which this entails, human life is responsible. So what I'm saying is, is that I think most people in this world, in the UK at the moment, if you were to say to them, do you believe in God? A lot of people would say yes. Probably, I think it's statistically like 70% of people would say God in some some way. And most people wouldn't have a problem saying, well, if they believe in some kind of higher force, he's probably powerful. And maybe in some way he's designed things. No problem so far. That's the kind of God most of the people in the UK believe in. Powerful, maybe some kind of creator. But if you dare to say the Christian God, 
is a moral God. He's not just powerful. He doesn't just know all things. He's not just the creator. He is moral. He loves all things that are pure and holy and glorious. And he hates sin. And he hates all things that stand in opposition. If you talk about a God of morality who loves certain things and hates other things, who has an opinion on relationships and sex and gender, and hates things that stand against that, whoa, suddenly you come up against something. It's that part of the Christian God that he is a moral God that is the thing that so many people react against. I'll tell you why. Because you can have a God in all those other ways, but only a moral God calls us to change our life. It's only because we believe in a moral God who loves certain things and absolutely detests other things that it means it has a direct influence on us. Does that make sense? It's only because he's a morally holy God that actually the Christian God is so hated in this world. And you see, when you look in Isaiah chapter 6, we see this so clearly. Isaiah, one of the greatest prophets who's ever lived, in Isaiah 6, chapter 3, he has a glimpse of heaven. And he sees the angels saying, and one called to another saying, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The the whole earth is full of his glory. But then this is his instinctive reaction. He says, woe is me, for I am lost. I am a man of unclean lips and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. This is Isaiah, one of the greatest prophets, one of the most godly men that's ever walked the planet. And yet when he has a glimpse of heaven, he doesn't go, woohoo, that's great, that's so interesting, I'm looking into the Godhead. He is flat on his face and he says, woe is me. And he doesn't say, woe is me, he says, he doesn't say, woe is me. I see God, someone of greater intelligence. Or I see God, one of great love. Or I see God who has greater faithfulness than me. He says, woe is God. I'm a man of unclean lips. It's the morality of God that causes Isaiah to instinctively see in himself how profoundly unclean he is. Profoundly unclean. God doesn't need to point it out. It's just blatantly obvious. Isaiah sees the glory of heaven and instinctively he backs off and he's on his face and he's saying, I I don't even comprehend the glory of what's happening. So morally perfect is heaven. A.W. Tozer puts it like this. The sudden realisation of his personal depravity came like a stroke from heaven upon the trembling heart of Isaiah at the moment when he had his revolutionary vision of the holiness of God. His pain-filled cry, Woe is me, for I am undone, because I'm a man of unclean lips and dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips, expresses the feeling of every man or woman who has discovered himself under the disguises and has been confronted with an inward sight of the holy whiteness that is God. Such an experience cannot but be emotionally violent. Friends, we have a God who is so transcendent. We have a God that if we could truly see in the way that Isaiah saw, we too would have an emotionally violent reaction. And in fact, when you read history, church history, about what happens in revival, which is something that we are always praying for, God, bring revival to this land. Let your power be manifest. Do you know, although there's joy as people realize the greatness of the gospel, 
there is also an Isaiah-like reaction. Woe is me. In 1859, revival ripped through Ireland, the Ulster Revival. And this is the account of what happened in one of the schools as God's power was manifest. In one of the large schools, a boy came under conviction. So much so that the teachers sent him home with an older boy who had been converted only the previous day. On the way home, they turned into an empty house to pray together. The troubled boy was soon rejoicing and said, I must go back and tell the teacher. And with a beaming face, he told him, Oh, sir, I am so happy I have the Lord Jesus in my heart. The whole class was deeply affected as a result, and boy after boy rose and silently left the room. When the teacher went to investigate, he found them ranged around the playground wall on their knees. Silent prayer soon gave way to loud cries and prayers, which carried to the girls' school on the first floor. Immediately, the girls fell on their knees and wept, and the commotion carried into the street. Neighbours, passers-by, came flocking in, and as soon as they crossed the threshold, they all came under the same convicting power. Ministers came to help. Men of prayer were summoned, and the day was spent in leading young and old to saving faith in Christ. Meals were forgotten, and the work continued until 11 p.m. that night. But notice there, there's joy, and there is also a profound awareness of the holiness of God. Tozer says, God is holy, and he has made holiness the moral condition necessary to the health of the universe. Sin's temporary presence in the world only accents this. Whatever is holy is healthy. Evil is moral sickness that must end ultimately in death. The formation of the language itself suggests this, as the English word holy derives from the Anglo-Saxon halle or how, meaning well or whole. And since God's first concern for his universe is its moral health, its holiness, whatever is contrary to this is necessarily under his eternal displeasure. I know this is heavy. I know this is serious. But you know, guys, we have to start in this place. Whatever is contrary to the holiness of God is under his eternal displeasure. You know, when we look at Jesus in the Bible, we so often filter out, consciously or unconsciously, so much of his divinity of his holiness. Do you know what the most common title Jesus used for himself was? Anyone here know? Son of man, well done. I didn't know that. And when I say to you, what does son of man mean? What was he saying? Why did he call himself the son of man? Put it this way. When I, when I used to see that phrase, I thought he was kind of talking about his humanity. He, had talked to, he sometimes called himself the son of God. I'm a bit like God. You know, I'm God. Sometimes son of man. I'm a bit like you. It's just so not the case. You see, the Son of Man was a title that was born in Daniel 7. Daniel was another prophet like Isaiah. And in chapter 7, he sees both the Father and the Son. It says this, he says, I looked, thrones were placed, and the Ancient of Days, that's the Father, took his seat. His clothing was white as snow, and the hair of his head like pure wool. And his throne was fiery flames. Its wheels were burning fire. And a stream of fire issued and came out from before him. A thousand thousand served him, and ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him. The court sat in judgment, and the books were opened. That's a picture of heaven with the Father. 
But then look, see what happens. And behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. That's Jesus. And he came to the Ancient of Days, the Father, and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and kingdom, and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. And his dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom is one that shall not be destroyed. When Jesus said, Son of man, Son of man, Son of man, Son of man, to any Jew who knew the Old Testament, they would have gone, Oh my goodness, you are saying you are God. In their minds, Son of Man was not some lowly, humble title, like a surname. It was him saying, I come from heaven. I come from the place of ultimate judgment. I am holy. That is my very nature. It was anything but a humble phrase. It was a, another coded way, as it were, of Jesus saying, Yes, I come to save you, but first you must realize I am holy. I am set above. I'm from somewhere else. And guys, I want to say, and I know I'm spending longer on this first point because it's so important. The reason I am is because I believe as a nation we have a plague upon us. And it's called self-righteousness. We as a nation are so blind to our absolute immorality. We are so profoundly blind to it. You know, I think most British people, I love this country, okay? I adore Britain. I absolutely love it. (laughs) This mighty nation. But I think if you were to ask most British people, they would think, well, we haven't got as crazy a a government as some, you know, wacky communist countries, you know? And, you know, we've got a pretty good policy when it comes to letting in, you know, asylum seekers. We're pretty nice to those guys. And, you know, we're not as obese as the Americans, although, you know, we're getting that way in comparison with most of the other of Europe, statistically. You know, we're pretty good. We're kind of a balanced, moderate people. But you know what? We are, as a nation, that is the most dangerous, dangerous attitude we could ever conceivably have of thinking that we are basically okay. You know, this came home to me in a small way, just chatting with a couple of guys who are from South Africa and Zimbabwe. <laughs> it's pretty obvious who they are. But anyway, if you know the church. And one thing they just said, one thing they were amazed at in this country when they came here, was just how scantily clad often women in the street were. Back in their home nations, they would never dress like they do. And they came here, and actually, to be honest with you, it was quite difficult. And I was like, really? I hadn't noticed it at all. And they were more shocked that I hadn't noticed it than the actual issue itself. Now, the point there is this. I lead a church. I should be fairly sensitive to things like that. And yet, because I'm part of the culture, because I'm part of British society, I am blind. I'm blind, even in comparison with other nations, to the, to the lack of moral standing that our God would want us to have. How much more are we different, therefore, from our holy God? If we are morally blind in some ways, as one nation compared with another, oh my goodness, how unbelievably morally blind are we in comparison with the holy, holy God? Romans 3 very politely says, For we have all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. I love that. It's kind of a very English way of saying we've all done, we haven't done terribly well as a population. <laughs> Isaiah 64, come on Isaiah, sock it to us. He says, We've all become like one who's unclean. And all our righteous deeds are like a polluted garment. NIV says filthy rags. In the Hebrew it actually means a period stained item of clothing. Sorry ladies, that's what it says. 
It's trying to convey the fact, as David Paulson says, when we as a nation think we're pretty good because of our policies and that kind of stuff and our relative well health or whatever, or even as the people of God, if we get it wrong, is that when we say to God, aren't we good? Look at these good things we've done. It's actually like a, a toddler with, a, with a, uh, a potty full of poo saying, look, Dad, isn't that amazing? And the dad going, frankly, son, no. It's revolting. I must say, Daisy, my daughter, is the most exquisite little squidge ball that's ever lived. But her poos, they are terrible. And, you know, when we come and, and in our own righteousness and think, well, I've, done, I've had a pretty good life. I was a British, you know, British citizen, CV mate, you know, christened when I was little. Oh, I was pretty good. You know, you gave money away every so often. Believe me, it is absolutely meaningless. In, in comparison with the holy, transcendent God. Absolutely. The Old Testament and the New Testament boom out the fact that all of us have fallen short. We as Christians so often rush onto grace. We so rush onto, oh, but God loves you, God loves you, He really loves you. And of course He loves you. And we'll look at that in a minute. It's the good news. But we have, hey, amen, everyone's saying. But the reality is, is the Old Testament. It starts with something called the Ten Commandments. It's where God, a holy God, goes, I'll just give you ten. All right, I could have given you ten thousand. I'll just give you ten. These are my moral expectations of you. Oh, you failed. What a surprise. You failed. The problem is, then you get to the New Testament where Jesus goes, you think those were tough. I'm raising the bar even higher. You've heard it said that you should not commit adultery. I say to you, even if you look at someone lustfully, you've already sinned before God. You've heard it said in the Old Testament, don't commit murder. <laughs> Haven't done that one. But I say to you, even if you get angry in your heart with someone before a perfectly moral holy judge, you are totally condemned. And he finishes it, doesn't he, in Matthew 5. Just so there's absolutely no doubt in our minds, you therefore must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Is that a bit condemning? I think it's very condemning. I know people say, oh, you're so condemning. Christians are so condemning. Do you know what? We have to start in a place where we realize there is a terrible problem. We do. We have, to, we have to be a people who are brave enough. It doesn't mean we walk around with sandwich boards saying, repent, night, hell is coming. We're just normal. God is with us. We can just look for any opportunities where we say, listen, this is not, I am in no way, no way morally superior to you. I am just, I was just as condemned as you, 100%. But I can't deny it. And you see, if we don't speak about this, there's nothing to be saved from. There is no gospel. If Christ didn't come to save sinners, if we're so scared about ever mentioning this, then what it means is people will never have any sense of impending danger. No sense of impending horrendous destruction to us. You know, when we talk about being a community-embracing church, it's not, a, a, a luxury, it's not like an option for some of you. It's because we believe in hell. It's because we believe at the moment... As serious as it is, and I wish it could be all lovey-dovey, the reality is the starting place for the Christian church, in respect to the denomination or theological persuasion, must be that there is a judgment coming. There must be an urgency. And if we allow anything to get in there, then I believe we will all give an account. Not me, just as a leader, we will all give an account for how we serve this city. And God has made it so clear to us. And we need to hear it. We need to feel the weight of it. Because before we preach grace, we have to preach the reality that in, a, in the light of a holy God, every single one of us stands condemned. 
But so we've, we start then. Why, how can we make sense of that day of judgment? Well, first of all, by having a glimpse of the moral holiness of our God. But secondly, and with this we finish, by have a second revelation that our judge is not just a holy judge, he's also a loving, glorious judge. Because the scriptures tell us that if we were to stop at point one, we would only have part of the issue, part of the story. The Bible also paints a picture of a God, as 1 John 4 says, not just that who likes love, God is love. You know, last week we said God is community. It's his actual character. We have a God, a judge, who is also totally loving. And there's two ways that he particularly expresses his loving nature. Number one, a loving patience. And number two, a loving payment. Our God has been profoundly patient with us. As 2 Peter 3.9 says this, he says, The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. We have a holy, holy judge as a God, but we also have a profoundly loving judge. And every hour, every minute, and every day, and every year, and every decade that goes past that we just get so used to, booms out patience. It declares a God who says, I don't want to judge anyone. My heart yearns. My heart yearns for every single person that's ever lived to have a chance to repent. That means to turn around and to say, God, I'm sorry. Will you forgive me? His patience His patience is that thing we so often forget and yet it saturates the entire Bible. Our God is a patient God. You see sometimes almost those glimpses in the Bible where God reminds us that he doesn't always have to be like that, as it were. Acts chapter 5 is a classic. Go back and read it at some point. The early church is growing. They're giving all their money. There's a couple called Ananias and Sapphira. They give some money, but they don't give quite as much as they pretend to. Our God immediately kills Ananias, and then kills Sapphira. Husband and wife, both killed. Why? Because they lied to the Holy Spirit. They lied to God, and God was totally just in doing it. And when you read that story, you don't say to yourself, ooh, why did he do that? Wasn't he mean? The one who created all life anyway. You say, how amazing, you haven't done that to me. Not why, Lord, have you done that, but why on earth haven't you stopped my life in the tracks the moment I first sinned? He should have the moment that we first sinned, whenever that was in our life, immediately annihilated us, judged us, immediately should have taken us to a place of judgment, but he didn't, patiently, patiently yearning that no one would perish. He is a staggeringly patient God. And he wrestles with this world, as it were, and he's desperate for this world to repent and turn to him. You know, Daisy, that's my little 12-month-old daughter, has just got to that stage where she is perpetually putting things into her mouth that are absolutely terrifying. She's constantly grabbing bits of wood and, and rocks and mud and leaves and you name it, and knives, you know, and she's trying to put it in her mouth. So I spend most of my day wrestling with her, Daisy, get the ball bearing out of your mouth. It, will, it won't do you any good. 
And she doesn't want it. She thinks in her little brain that she wants to eat that ball bearing. Obviously, I know better. And eventually, because I'm relatively patient, after much struggling and almost having my finger severed by her teeth, I managed to get it out. And you know, God is wrestling with this world. We, as a world, this world out there has no idea the peril it's in. And God wrestles patiently, day in, day out, using us as the church, building relationships with people in our workplaces, over the, over the, 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 uh, the neighbor's fence, the mums at the gates, and at the back of it all, all the time he's saying, I'm a patient God, I want to bring that person through you unto repentance. That's his heart. He's sustaining all things so that one day, one day through you, he can bring those people to know Jesus. 2 Peter 3.15, it says, And count the patience of our Lord as salvation. The fact that God is, is patient is the only reason that there's any hope of salvation. Paul, in dramatic language, says, Do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience? not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance. Friends, our God is wonderfully patient. He is a God who has given us this life that we would be a walking, talking advertisement for his son. And that's not a pressure thing, because the wonderful truth is that God's power in us enables us to be people that can be used for his glory. Our God is so patient, He is so patient, he holds on and holds on from bringing judgment to this world. But finally, he is loving in his payment towards this world. And this is the greatest, greatest news we will ever know, is that when we look in the scriptures, we look at the judge who is not only patient, who doesn't only hold back from bringing the judgment he needs to, but he also paid the price in full for all the sin. He paid the price to allow an unholy, rebellious people to become sons and daughters of the king. That we would avoid judgment, that we would be forgiven, and that the debt would be paid. In the Alpha course, which is a fantastic course, if you're a non-Christian here today, or if you're a new Christian, I wholeheartedly recommend you attend it. It starts on the, the 3rd of October. Come and see me for details about it, or Cy Hughes at the Sam Mount at the back in the loud chair who runs the course. Nicky Gumble, who leads the course, uses a fantastic illustration of a judge who one day goes about his uh, judging, gets up into his, into his dock, no, it's not the dock, is it? Whatever, wherever the judge sits, and he looks down, and to his horror, he sees a good friend of his in the dock. And the evidence is, is compelling. There's no way that it can be denied. This person is totally guilty. And so, bound by the law, the judge is forced to, to judge this person and, and issue a huge fine. Justice has been served. But the story continues because then the judge takes off his wig, he walks down from where he was sitting, and now, as it were, as his friend, he goes up to the guy, he gets out his own checkbook, and he writes an amount, the exact amount that he's just issued, tears it off and gives it to him, and pays in full the debt, the payment that needed to be made for that offence. The Bible tells us that this judge, as well as being holy, he is also incredibly, staggeringly loving, who is overflowing with grace and desperate, yearning, yearning to pay the price for you. And what we find is this, is that although that picture is helpful, it doesn't go far enough. 
Because the reality is, is that it wasn't that God just looked down and went, oh no, all of humanity's sin. Oh well, better write a bit of a check. That's going to dent the old bank account for a little while. The Bible's clear that our offence before a holy God is so serious that actually the only appropriate penalty was death. It wasn't a fine. It wasn't being banged up in prison for a few months or years. It was death. But that friend, as it were, totally faced the electric chair, the gas chamber. But what we find is this, staggeringly, is that God, nevertheless, despite the payment being death, sent his only son, Jesus, perfect, spotless, blameless, into earth, onto earth, so that he would take the punishment for you and for me. Romans 5 says this, For whilst we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us, in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. Hallelujah. He died a death that, so that we don't ever have to die. He, he took the righteous anger of God upon himself so that we do not have to experience it on that day. He dealt once and for all with the eternally serious issue of your sin and my sin. And that's why John 3.16 says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God didn't send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that that, that the world might be saved through him. The glorious news is, is that he sent his only Son I mean, any of you who are parents will know this truth just gets you. As I was preparing it this week, as I wrote this sentence, I just broke down the thought of God, the Father, who has emotions, by the way. He's a real Father. He's not just some sort of floaty thing that doesn't feel anything. He has real emotions, more emotions than you or I will ever have. His only Son, whom heaven has always adored, and all of... The choirs of the angels of of eternity have been singing the worship of. That he would choose to send his perfect only son onto this earth to go to the gas chamber. To go to the electric chair. To be crucified. So that you and I, when we stand in that dock, we will hear the cry, not guilty. He sent him. And when I think of anything, any pain happening to Daisy, even the idea of her being bullied, Verbally, at school. The emotion I feel is just incomprehensible. I cannot think of any scenario possible that could exist that would ever compel me to allow any pain to happen to her. I would literally rather die than have her die. I, I'm not, you know what I mean if you're a parent. There is something in you that is so vulnerable when you look at your child. And that was the only way that this eternal problem could be solved. And I have no answer to you today, no real answer to you as to why our Father chose to do it. I know theologically it's because of the glory that he gets from it. But emotionally, I can't even comprehend 
Why on earth our Father in heaven didn't look at his Son and look at the Spirit and say, well, we've given them hundreds of years, they've been completely rebellious, they haven't even ever responded to us, they are a wicked bunch of self-minded, selfish sinners, let's just judge them because it's what they deserve. That would have been the right and just thing to do. But because of an indescribable, unfathomable goodness and loving kindness in our God, in that judge, he gave of himself. When he gave his son, he gave of himself the most precious thing. When he said, I'm sending my son to die so that you do not have to. Penal substitution. Glory. The wrath of the father hurled out on his son for all of our sin. The scandal of it. The injustice of it. And yet at the time, the perfect justice. What a God. What a God. I want to say, guys, as I finish, is that Christ's blood was shed for you and for me. And what that means is, is that this isn't just some kind of offer or a suggestion. It is so incredibly costly that today, if you're not a Christian here today, I I don't know of any other way I can explain this. I don't know of any other way I can explain to you why you both must, in terms of a compulsion because of coming judgment, and yet also motivated by the staggering love of God, surrender your life to this most glorious God. A God who totally was justified in sending us all to hell, and yet was patient, and even more than that, paid the price in full, sending his exquisite son to die and to rise. He rose from the dead, proving totally and completely that everything we read in the Bible is true, conquering even death. This is our gospel. And it means that for you who step over that line, as it were, in your heart, say, I'm, I'm st- I don't trust in my own filthy rags. I may have led quite a good life compared with other people, but I know before a holy God I cannot trust in that. And I trust by faith in your work, Jesus, in your perfection. I trust in that. I'm today saying that is my hope. For those of you who do that, I want to say, I believe once you've done that, you are totally, eternally secure before God. I believe that our God gloriously ushers you into not just being forgiven, but adopted. Adopted as his sons and daughters into the royal family of heaven. His blood is totally sufficient. So that when you face that judge on that day, when we all will, when we all will, we can face him with incredible confidence. Knowing that the righteous anger of God was poured out on his son 2,000 years ago. When we hear that hammer come down, the cry for those in Christ will be, not guilty. And and your friends who don't know him say, well, how come? I was even better than that guy. I did so many more good things. And you go, I know the scandal of grace. Not by works, but by faith in Christ's perfect righteousness. That is the gospel. And I want to say to you today with all my heart that if you're a non-Christian here today, don't go away and think about it. Don't waste any more time. It is as simple and as glorious as that. And I want to say to you here today, is that our God loves you, he's for you, and I believe today is the day of salvation. There will always be questions. But what about this, what about that? But the essence is this, is what do you make of Jesus? Jesus, the one who today says to you, trust in me, not in what you think you can do. 
Let's just close our eyes. Lord Jesus, we say today that we recognise, Lord God, that you are holy. You are above all things. And Lord God, today we want to say to you that we make no apologies for who you are. Lord, we thank you that you are set above. You, Lord God, are transcendent. But today I want to pray for all those here who may not know you, who perhaps are still thinking about what it means to be a Christian. Lord, I want to pray today that you would, right now, just draw close to them. A God of astounding holiness and yet a God of astounding love. Not either or, both. I just want to say to you here today, if you are a non-Christian, and you want to give your life to Jesus, you want to choose today to accept the free offer of forgiveness, I want to ask you just to put your hand in the air. No one here is watching. Everyone's eyes are closed. I just want to encourage you with all of my heart that God's word is true. It is trustworthy. And it is the power to save. And there is no more important message for you to hear today or ever than what you've heard. I just want to say to you right now, please, just demonstrate your heart to do that by just raising your hand between you and God. Just raise your hand. Say, Lord, I want to do it. Lord, today, today, Lord, I know I have to get right with you. Lord, in view of your holiness, I want to trust only in Jesus. And Lord, we just say today, Lord God, that we stand in awe of you. Lord, as we come to an end now, Lord God, I thank you, Lord God, that you take us to places in our hearts and our minds that are are uncomfortable because, Lord, out of that place you change us to become more serious about the mission to the city. Lord, I, I pray for us as a church now. I pray, Lord God, that you would just In our hearts and in our minds, Lord God, you would be a constant reminder, Lord God, that although we have a wonderful message, Lord God, there is also the reality, the scary reality of a holy God who watches this earth and calls desperately, yearns for men and women to return to the flock, to come into his loving, loving family. Lord, we just pray for this week. We pray, Lord God, would you... Help us, Lord Jesus, as we look at this issue in cell groups. I pray, Lord God, come upon us and lead us on. In Jesus' name. Amen. We're going to call it a day there. Hugh, is there anything else we need to mention? Yeah, we're going to pray for Debbie, as we mentioned. If you would like prayer for anything, I know it's been a heavy morning. Uh, Take that up with God. Um, I would love to pray with you. Uh, if there's anything at all, if you want to talk more about this Christian faith, please come forward. We've got some ministry team here for you. And we'll be praying for Debbie as well. Refreshments will be served. Thanks so much for being here. And uh, hopefully see most of you guys over at the pool 
in a few minutes at Vernon Home. God bless you guys. Thanks so much.